welcome. Um, today is a discussion of the orbit, but I'm going to do it in a different way. In a sense, kind of all the things you might want to know in general anatomy um, about the orbit, what's important perhaps, dividing it into the aspects of the bony orbit, the nasolacrimal apparatus, um, the structure of the eye, uh, what we might need to know in general anatomy about that, about the mechanisms of ocular movement, and then a summary of the nerves and vessels. And I think that if we do all of those, cover all those bases, then I think uh, we probably need, we'll, we'll be able to know everything that we need to know. And um, so therefore I intend to discuss, I think, firstly the orbit itself and then the eyelid, the palpebral margin, the nasolacrimal apparatus, the eye, the extraocular muscles and how they work. And the latter, I think, is a rather favourite question of anatomists, including the sort of individual palsies. The nasolacrimal apparatus was actually something I was asked about in my surgical fellowship and I, and I think it was put in there to kind of throw me. So um, let's start with the orbit. A few little caveats. The orbital fascia is the periosteum of the orbit, which posteriorly is continuous with the dura mater and the sheath of the optic nerve. The accessory structures include the extraocular muscles, the eyelids, the conjunctiva and the lacrimal gland, which although not completely within the orbit, are considered here. And there are a number of orbital suspensory mechanisms or support mechanisms, of which the orbital fat is probably the most important, where it surrounds the optic nerve and sort of cushions, stabilises the eye against the backward pull of the muscles. It's not subject to weight change, and anyone who's dissected the orbit knows the rather tedious nature of the fat dissection uh, in trying to show the individual nerves and vessels. Now let's first talk a little bit about the bony orbit. If, if you have a skull whilst I'm talking, that's probably useful to examine. Um, I think in a later um, structure, we're going to create uh, audio-visual podcasts, which will be based on the audio, but which will include um, visuals as a as a uh, an audio-visual channel, and I think that'll assist us. But for the moment, we'll just talk about these areas. So it's useful to examine an, an orbit or a skull if you have one. And the orbit, as you can see, is like a cone or a pyramid, uh, some might call it, lying on its side. The opening that you're looking at is the most external part, and we strictly call that the aditus. The narrow bit at the back is called the base, and the smooth roof is, of course, the frontal bone, or more correctly, the orbital part of the frontal bone, with, at its most posterior part, the lesser wing of the sphenoid. And on the medial side of the frontal sinus, uh, on the medial side, rather, the frontal sinus lies between the orbital and squamous parts of the frontal bone. Now let's clarify this, because it's a bit complicated. There are seven bones that make up the orbit. Most medially is the lacrimal bone, and that articulates with the nasal bone, which is not part of the orbit. The lacrimal bone lies against the orbital lamina of the ethmoid bone, which here is rather small, 
and which abuts against the superior part of the superior orbital fissure. Now, as you look at it medially and superiorly, you can just see a bit of the optic canal. And that larger bone holding the superior orbital fissure, the optic canal, and the peaking inferior orbital fissure is actually all part of the greater wing of the sphenoid. Above, as we've said, is the orbital part of the frontal bone, which forms a large part beyond the superior orbital fissure of the posterior orbital margin. And below is the horizontal extension of the maxilla, and that area fills in the space for the inferior orbital fissure. Filling in the area on the side of the maxilla and forming the lateral orbital margin is the zygomatic bone, which articulates over quite a wide area with the sphenoid. The inferior orbital fissure is incorporated in that joint. Now, right at the very medial tip of the inferior orbital fissure, between the sphenoid, the ethmoid and the maxilla is a little small filled-in area which actually represents the palatine bone. So it's a little bit more complicated there. So to recap, we have the sphenoid, the ethmoid, the lacrimal, the frontal, the zygomatic, and finally, the palatine bones. The bulk of the sphenoid is the greater wing of the sphenoid, but at the back, there's a small portion of the orbit made by the lesser wing there too. The zygomatic contributes uh, as its orbital surface. The posterior lacrimal crest can be seen as a vertical ridge on the lacrimal bone, and the lacrimal fossa sits between this and the smaller anterior lacrimal crest, housing in the lacrimal fossa the lacrimal sac. Now, inferiorly, this leads into a groove for the nasolacrimal canal. That's difficult to see on, a, on an intact skull. And at the junction of this medial wall and the roof of the orbit lies the anterior and the posterior ethmoidal foramina between the ethmoid and the frontal bones in the visible frontoethmoidal suture. Now, these medial walls of the orbit lie parallel with each other, separating the orbits from the ethmoidal air cells and the lateral wall of the nose. That's the basic makeup. The lateral wall, as I've said, is made up of the zygomatic bone, with just inside the upper bit of the anterior margin, the so-called marginal tubercle of Whitnall, against the greater wing of the sphenoid. And that's a very important little landmark laterally in the orbit. I'll come back to that later. The superior orbital fissure lies between the lateral wall of the roof, effectively the greater and lesser wings of the sphenoid. And as I've said in another earlier podcast, is a means for transmitting structures from the middle cranial fossa to the orbit. That's what the superior orbital fissure is there for. The inferior orbital fissure diverges from the medial end of the superior orbital fissure between the lateral wall and the floor, in other words, between the greater wing of the sphenoid and the maxilla. And so this is really pretty easy, in a sense, to remember the differences there between the superior and the inferior orbital fissure. The SOF running between the lesser and greater wings of the sphenoid, the inferior orbital fissure running between the greater wing of the sphenoid and the maxilla. And the inferior orbital fissure leads into the pterygopalatine fossa, which we've considered in an earlier podcast, and hence into the infratemporal fossa. 
the lateral wall separates the orbit from the temporal fossa, which we've also covered, and which lies in front, and I guess posteriorly the middle cranial fossa, as I've already mentioned. Now, this lateral wall actually slopes at about 45 degrees to the sagittal split plane, and the two lateral walls, and therefore the orbits, are at about right angles to one another. So it's just the disposition of the orbit, or the cone of the orbit, from the base to the antitus. The floor is, of course, the orbital surface of the maxilla, which is grooved by the infraorbital foramen, completely laterally in front by the zygomatic bone and posteriorly, as I've already stated, by a small orbital process of the palatine bone. You remember that that bone lies on its side with a horizontal and a vertical plate and coming off that vertical plate is the lateral orbital process, which is the bit we're talking about here, and medially a little sphenoidal process. Okay? Now, for interest, one of the ways of dissecting the orbit is to chip through the thin, ridged orbital part of the frontal bone in the anterior cranial fossa. That's an easy way. It's fairly thin bone. And if you do that, you can extend into the mucoperiosteum of the ethmoid air cells medially and occasionally the frontal sinus, which can encroach at the front. And backwards, if you take off the free edge of the lesser wing of the sphenoid, but leaving its most medial bit, which is the optic canal that leads back towards the anterior clinoid processes. If you do that, you'll actually see the superior orbital fissure perfectly. And we'll discuss the ethmoid air cells in a podcast on the nose and nasopharynx a bit later on. But here we can see the multiple thin-walled cavities, if we approach it this way, of the ethmoidal sinuses, which occupy the whole of the ethmoid labyrinth between the orbit and the upper part of the cavity of the nose. And these form three groups, of which the anterior and the middle empty into the middle meatus, with the posterior emptying into the superior meatus. Um, A small probe inserted here shows this difference actually quite nicely. And later on I'll consider the anatomy of the surgical approach to an orbital blowout fracture. Now I want to divert here into the structural anatomy of the eyelids uh, briefly and the nasolacrimal apparatus before we get into the structures in the orbit proper. The eyelids are covered with skin at the front and conjunctiva at the back and they're part of a skeletal framework, the orbital septum, and are thicker at the margins of the lids by the formation of tarsal plates. The orbicularis oculi muscle is disposed in front of the orbital septum, which is attached to the anterior lacrimal crest and the orbital margins. So that in effect you've got a palpebral fissure between the upper and lower lids, and that's effectively a septal buttonhole with the upper part densely thickened as the superior tarsal plate. The inferior tarsal plate is much less dense below. And in the way that we can turn this inside out, if you've done that with the hair and the uh, eye there, and turning the tarsal plate out, particularly the top plate, there's both fibrous tissue and cartilage that we know are in those plates. Medially, the buttonhole of the palpable fissure through the orbital septum is thickened as a specialised medial palpable ligament, and it anchors those tarsal plates to the anterior lacrimal crest, 
with the corresponding lateral tarsal plate much thinner, fusing with a lateral palpable raphae within the orbicularis oculi muscle and which attaches to the lateral marginal tubercle of the zygomatic bone, which we've already mentioned before, the tubercle of Whitnall, W-H-I-T-N-A-L-L. The tubercle typically lies around 11 millimetres inferior uh, to the frontozygomatic suture in the lateral orbital wall, and it sits 4 to 5 millimetres posterior to the lateral orbital rim around the midline. The tubercle is an attachment, I like to think of the four L's in one way to think of it, but it attaches the lateral rectus check ligament, the suspensory ligament of Lockwood, the lateral palpable ligament, and the levator aponeurosis. So it's got a four L attachment, that's one way of looking at it. Lateral rectus, Lockwood suspensory ligament, lateral palpable ligament, levator aponeurosis. In front of the septum is the palpable part of the orbicularis oculi muscle, and superficial to that is the angular facial vein of the medial canthus. We're now back onto the medial side, the commissure of the upper and lower lids, with the eyelashes adherent to the tarsal plates. This is also the site of the tarsal mebomian glands, which are modified sebaceous glands, which waterproof the lid margins and which slow the evaporation of tears. The conjunctiva here is very adherent so that it's not wrinkled or redundant during the movement of the eyelids. The medial end houses the lacrimal papilla and at its apex the lacrimal punctum, which opens into a lacrimal canaliculus entering the lacrimal sac. So these are the terms that are used. And the lids are supplied by the palpable branches of the ophthalmic artery in terms of their vasculature and innervated by the lacrimal, supraorbital, supratrochlear and infratrochlear nerves and the lower lid by the inferior orbital or infraorbital nerve. The conjunctival supply of both lids is identical. The lower lid has very little mobility with closure gently by the palpable fibres of the orbicularis oculi and a more forcible closure with the orbital fibres of that muscle coming into play. The lids are opened by the levator palpebrae superioris muscle with the eyebrows lowered by the orbital fibres of the orbicularis oculi. And these sort of sun visor effects, if you think of them that way, can be approximated by the function of the corrugator supercilia muscles. So there's some little bit of muscular redundancy. The transparent conjunctiva is attached to the sclera at the corneal margins, and it's reflected onto the inner surface of the eyelids and firmly attached to the tarsal plates. Some consider a sort of fold here medially, which they call the plecar semilunaris, as the homologue of a third eyelid of the so-called nictitating membrane of some uh, animals. At the medial canthus is the caruncle, which is a small little sort of pimple of modified skin, with the lacus lacrimalis, or lacrimal sac, between the plica, or plica, and the caruncle, where excess tears tend to accumulate before dropping into the canaliculi. The lacrimal gland opens laterally 
via 12 to 15 separate ducts with a flange from the tendon of the levator palpebrae superioris attached along the superior fornix. The corneal nerve supply is, of course, different from the conjunctival nerve supply. As we've already mentioned, the cornea is innervated by the long and short ciliary nerves, actually by the nasociliary nerve of V1. Now, in the lacrimal apparatus, that consists of the lacrimal gland, the lacrimal canaliculi, the lacrimal sac, and the nasolacrimal duct. The lacrimal gland is a serous gland with a large orbital and a small palpebral component. The orbital part lies laterally supported by the lateral edge of the aponeurotic tendon of the levator palpebrae superioris, curling around it at the palpebral part. And it's actually visible uh, through the superior conjunctival fornix. Both the tendon and the orbital fat actually stabilise the gland a little bit. The ducts lead from the palpebral part into the superior conjunctival fornix, and those from the orbital part are a bit deeper. They pass through the palpebral part. The closure of the eyes is lateral, moving immediately, effectively kind of screwing the eye closed, so that this encourages the tear flow from lateral to medial and therefore down towards the drainage. So it's a kind of asymmetric closure, particularly enforced. And we've discussed it before the autonomic nerve supply to the lacrimal gland in an earlier AHN uh, Anatomy Head and Neck podcast, actually number four. Uh, so if you want to review that on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck, um, it goes into it in some detail. But if we remember, the nucleus was the superior salivatory nucleus. The preganglionic pathway, just briefly, was the greater petrosal nerve coming from the seventh nerve. The synapse was in the pterygopalatine ganglion. The postganglionic pathway was via the zygomaticotemporal nerve of V2, and then it jumped across rather strangely from V2 to the lacrimal nerve of V1, just hitchhiking along with the um, ophthalmic division, part of trigeminal. The tear content is a mix of sebaceous material from the glands of the lids and the caruncle, a bit of an aqueous component from the lacrimal secretion and a deeper mucus element from the few scattered goblet cells that are located in the conjunctiva. The blinking reflex is produced by the palpebral fibres of the orbicularis oculi and is mediated by the nasociliary branch of the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve as the afferent arc, sensing the stimulus on the cornea, and then the efferent limb is via the temporal and zygomatic branches of the facial nerve. The lacrimal sac is there to remove excess tears so as to clear the vision. The lacrimal canaliculi lead from the puncture to the lacrimal sac with mucosal flap valves preventing tear reflux. The lacrimal bone and the maxilla form the lacrimal fossa for the lacrimal sac, as I've mentioned before, which is crossed in front by the medial palpable ligament. Some of the fibres of the palpable part of the orbicularis oculi are inserted into the lacrimal sac so that the puncture turn inwards to dip into the lacus lacrimalis and the sac is effectively widened which allows the tears to effectively be sucked through by the canaliculi. 
as there's a lot of elastic tissue in the wall of the lacrimal sac as it relaxes, that assists also in pumping tears into the nasolacrimal duct. Now, the nasolacrimal duct is about two centimetres in length, sloping downwards and quite laterally across the rather pear-shaped nasal cavity and opens into the front of the inferior meatus. And it's a valved mucosa to prevent reflux, so when you blow your nose, you're not refluxing back up into the, uh, uh, into the nasolacrimal duct and towards the lacrimal sac. So that's basically, I think, all you need to know about the nasolacrimal apparatus. It's neurology, you can reassess the autonomic nerve supply, and kind of a bit about the orbit, and that's really all we need to know about that bit. We can move on. I did want to talk uh, a little bit about eye stability, uh, because that's of relevance, I think, um, in... um, you know, ocular injuries and in injuries, um, blowout fractures of the orbit. The fascial sheath of the eye is called the fascia bulbi, or tenons capsule. And it's like a suspensory bursa which runs from the corneoscleral junction to the optic nerve as a sort of shock absorber. The outer sheath is inserted Uh, into by the recti and runs in part as extensions along the muscles. Laterally, for example, it's thicker, where it's called the lateral check ligament for attachment, as we've already said, to Whitnell's tubercle. On the medial side, over the medial rectus, it forms the medial check ligament, which adheres to the posterior lacrimal crest. So these are just anchoring the eye, their fascial thickenings. The area inferiorly between these holding the whole eye up like a hammock is then the suspensory ligament of Lockwood, which is a blending of the sheaths over the inferior oblique and the inferior rectus muscles. And that leaves the eye nearer the superior than the inferior orbital margin. Now that point is of relevance since the bone stock below the tubercle of Whitnell, I said I'd return to that, which preserves this suspensory uh, region could be removed without disturbing the positioning of the globe. The eye then rotates around a fixed geometrical centre so that it's not displaced in movement forwards or backwards. The point I'm making about the Whitnell's tubercle is, is everything below that, if you remove the bone, the eye stability will remain. If you get up past that, then you've lost the stability of the eye. And as I've said uh, just moments ago, that the whole geometry of this thing leads to a a, a rotation around a fixed geometric centre, so that as the eye is moving forwards and backwards, it's not uh, in some way destabilised. The posterior displacement is prevented, actually, by the bony attachments of the recti and the large amount of orbital fat and by the dynamic forward pull of the oblique muscles. So all these things hold the eye into its particular position. The attachments of the medial and lateral recti to the check ligaments we've already mentioned also discourages any posterior displacement of the eyeball. So if anybody asks you about the stability of the eye, that's the answer to it. It's a bit more complicated than one thinks. One might want to talk a little bit, I think, about the structure of the eye. Um, 
And perhaps all we need to know about that. The orbital muscles and the orbital fat are separated from the eye, as I've said, with its fascial sheath. It's not perfectly spherical, with the anterior cornea having a smaller radius of curvature than the globe. Dissection of the fresh, as opposed to the uh, formalinized eye, is actually quite difficult uh, to appreciate some of these factors. The venae vorticosae, the pos- posterior ciliary arteries and nerves, all enter near the optic nerve, and in the cadaver, these are rather difficult to properly define. There are three coats which enclose a cavity filled with light-refracting media. That's what the eye is. There's an external fibrous coat, the sclera, of which the anterior one-sixth is the transparent cornea. There's a middle vascular and muscular coat comprising the iris anteriorly, the choroid posteriorly, and between them, the ciliary body. And the internal coat is the retina, which is uh, the the sort of light-sensitive rod cone part, and, of course, the origins of the optic nerve, which is the way the eye develops. The refracting media are the cornea, the aqueous humour, which is the bit between the cornea and the lens, filling the anterior chamber between the cornea and the iris, and the posterior chamber between the iris and the lens. And the two chambers, the anterior and the posterior, communicate via the pupil in the middle of the iris. The lens separates the posterior chamber from the vitreous body or vitreous chamber. Now, like a camera, there's a light-sensitive part, the retina, and a lens system for focusing. The cornea, the lens, and the refractive media are actually the whole apparatus with a means of controlling the amount of light admitted which is the iris diaphragm, like the aperture of a camera. And like a camera, the inside is black so as to prevent internal reflections. The sclera is an extension of the optic nerve dura, and the choroid is like an expansion of the arachnoid and pia. The retina is an expansion of the brain substance or the optic nerve. And that's just the basic structure of how it is. When we come to the fibrous coat, the sclera is the posterior five-sixths and it's densely adherent to the ciliary body. The inner choroid can be stripped off in dissection. Where the optic nerve breaks through the sclera, the subdural and subarachnoid spaces end and it's thinnest here at the so-called lamina cribrosa. In glaucoma, for example, the disc here is cupped And here also the long and short posterior ciliary arteries and ciliary nerves, as well as four to five so-called venae vorticosi, which are the choroidal veins, with anteriorly near the corneal margin the anterior ciliary arteries. Now near the corneoscleral junction, a minute canal um, in the internal sclera, the sinus venosus sclera, the so-called canal of Schlem, drains the aqueous humour. The endothelial lining of the canal is in contact with the mesothelium of the spaces of the pectinate ligament and which allow the transportation through giant vesicles of the aqueous humour. I don't think we need to worry too much about that. This area empties into the small scleral veins. The posterior limiting lamina um, is uh, on the posterior surface of the cornea And that's also called the membrane of decimae, 
which here breaks up into bundles or fibres, some of which pass directly back into the sclera, but others of which run medially uh, into an area where they're called the pectinate ligament of the iris, creating really minute spaces or channels at the iridocorneal angle. Blockage at these points leads um, to the sinus venosis uh, area that actually leads to glaucoma. The sclera uh, is, of course, relatively avascular. Now, the middle coat is the vascular coat, and this has the choroid ciliary body and the iris, typically all referred to as the uveal tract. The choroid sitting between the sclera and the retina consists of two layers of blood vessels, a deep meshed capillary net, and a more superficial venous layer giving rise to the venosae vorticosae. The posterior ciliary arteries run between these two layers, the middle coat is divisible into an external part, which is the ciliary muscle, and an inner part, the ciliary processes. And the ciliary involuntary muscle is arranged as the radiating and the circular fibres, with the former arising from the deep part of the sclera close to the cornea and radiating posteriorly, and the latter that lie a bit more deeply as discrete bundles of muscle close to the peripheral margin of the iris. I think that's probably small print that we don't need to worry about unless somebody's doing ophthalmology. The nerve supply is via the short ciliary nerves and are, as we've said before, post-ganglionic parasympathetics which originate in the ciliary ganglion and whose preganglionic fibres, we remember, are transmitted with three, the oculomotor cranial nerve. And again, I would recommend just reviewing the podcast on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck that was the fourth uh, uh, AHN podcast. The ciliary processes extend in a circular fashion from the choroid to the lens, um, at the point, really, of what's called the ciliary zonule. The iris, which is the coloured part of the eye, lies anterior to the lens and the posterior chamber and is separated from the cornea by the anterior chamber. Now, in order to appreciate this, I think one has to look at the eye axially and coronally. Its circumference is continuous with the ciliary body. It's connected to the cornea by what's called the pectinate ligament. And the posterior surface is pigmented and formed from the same epithelial layers as the retina and its pigment layer. The pupil is the central aperture, and in humans is circular, but it can be vertically or horizontally slit-like, as we know in other species. The diameter varies the amount of light reaching the retina with a reduction in size by the circular fibres of the sphincter pupillae at the pupillary margin of the iris and dilated by the radial myoepithelial cells, the so-called dilator pupillae. And the nerve supply, as we've said before, is a mix of postganglionic parasympathetic um, fibres from the ciliary ganglion to the short ciliary nerves. The dilator is supplied by the postganglionic sympathetic nervous system originating in the carotid plexus via the nasociliary and long ciliary nerves. The short ciliary nerves arise from the ciliary ganglion, as we remember. They pierce the sclera around the optic nerve as about a dozen little fine filaments and they break up into very fine plexiform branches on the inner sclera 
into the ciliary muscle uh, and uh, they contain the postganglionic parasympathetics to the ciliary muscle and the sphincter pupillae, the postganglionic sympathetics to the vessels of the eyeball and the sensory fibres from the nasociliary nerve. So all of these nerves, as we remember, attached to the autonomic nervous system are all mixed. There's sensory components, there are sympathetic components, there are parasympathetic components, but only, of course, the preganglionic parasympathetic components will synapse in the ganglia, and the others use it as a kind of relay station. Now, so therefore, they, they, the latter groups have no connection as such with the ciliary ganglion. The long ciliary nerves transmit sensory and sympathetic fibres from the nasociliary nerve through the sclera, with the sympathetic fibres, as I've said, coming from the carotid plexus or the carotid sinus nerve. The short posterior ciliary arteries are branches of the ophthalmic artery and they end in the choroid and they're separable from the two long ciliary arteries which are branches of the ophthalmic artery that pierce the sclera some distance from the optic nerve and that run between the sclera and the choroid for some distance and they anastomose with the anterior ciliary arteries to create a little arterial circle, if you like, at the periphery of the iris. That circle supplies the iris, the ciliary muscles and the ciliary processes. Now, the anterior ciliary arteries arise as very small branches from the arteries to the rectus muscles, piercing the sclera close to the cornea. The lesser arterial circle is a small anastomotic ring inside the greater circle, and it lies in the iris at the external border of the sphincter pupillae. The venae vorticosi arise from a large vein in the choroid which pierces the sclera just posterior to the equator and there are four or five of these veins which drain into the superior ophthalmic vein. So in summary, the short ciliary arteries of the nerve pierce the sclera close to the optic nerve as a bunch. The posterior ciliary artery in some distance is actually some distance away, forming at the sclerocorneal junction a kind of great arterial circle with the anterior ciliary artery. And then the veins pierce the sclera about mid-sclera and fill that gap between the sclera and the choroid up to the ciliary muscle. I want to mention a little something about the retina um, because we always uh, have a bit of discussion about that and, and people forget about the complexity of its structure. But in a specimen from which the sclera and the cornea have been removed, the iris ciliary processes and choroid can come off piecemeal, exposing the outermost layer of the retina. Now, the retina consists of an outer layer, a single pigmented layer of cells adherent to the choroid and typically removed from it. The thicker layer internally is the nervous layer, and it's attached to the vitreous and pigmented layers where the optic nerve pierces the sclera. And this part can therefore be readily detached during life, and such a retinal, uh, such a retinal detachment disconnects the nervous layer so that images can't focus, quite apart from affecting the nutrition of the nervous layer as well. The pigmented layer absorbs the light which has passed through the nervous layer, allowing the rays to create a sharp rather than a reflecting or scattered image. And in nocturnal animals, the choroid is a reflecting so-called tapetum, uh, where low-intensity light effectively passes through the retina 
twice increasing light sensitivity. So these animals can see better than we can in the dark. And light reflected off this inner tapetum effectively gives them a second chance really to see things. And of course is the effect of shining a cat's eyes in the glare of a car's headlight. The optic part of the retina extends to the aura serrata, close to the posterior margin of the ciliary body, and the two layers are continued anteriorly over the ciliary processes, the so-called pars ciliaris retinae, and the posterior surface of the iris, which is called the pars iridica retinae. The posterior surfaces of the ciliary processes are covered by a bilaminar layer of black pigment cells, which is continued forward from the retina, and is called, as I've said, the pars ciliaris retinae. The optic part of the retina consists of three layers of cells, the outermost light-sensitive rods and cones, and the innermost ganglion cells, which give rise to the nerve fibres passing to the brain and the optic nerve. At this point of transmission, the, the, the white optic disc there are really no sensory retinal elements, only the nerve fibres and the retinal vessels, the visual field blind spot. And you can confirm that by making a mark on a page and then looking in with one or the other eye covered, the line will actually um, disappear. It's quite a simple trick so that you're exposing the image to your blind spot. The middle layer of the retina consists of bipolar cells which connect the rods and cones to the ganglion cells. And one can see the macula lutea with a slight central depression, which is called the fovea centralis. And here, the acuity is greatest, and the cones there are very tightly packed and linked to individual ganglion cells, a one-on-one relationship. The outer retinal layer receives some choroidal blood supply, but the central artery of the retina reaches this area via the ophthalmic artery of the optic disc with the central vein dividing into uh, superior and inferior branches and then larger temporal and smaller nasal arterioles run to the aura serrata, but there are no anastomoses there. So in effect, this is an end vessel. The central retinal vein pierces the meningeal sheaths of the optic nerves and the subarachnoid space, and makes its way back into the superior ophthalmic vein. So you've got an end artery in the central retinal artery. The vitreous abuts on the retina, the ciliary processes and the lens, forming the so-called hyaloid fossa on its anterior surface, and filling four-fifths of the eyeball volume. And it forms a transparent vitreous membrane, where a minute canal runs from the optic disc to the posterior surface of the lens, the so-called hyaloid artery, and that's the embryological remnant, really, of the central artery uh, which um, supplied the developing lens in utero. So there are these additional internal structures. Equally, the ciliary zonule is a thickened part of the vitreous membrane fitted to the posterior surfaces of the ciliary processes. The posterior layer is thin, uh, lining the hyaloid fossa, and the anterior layer is thicker as the suspensory ligament of the lens, so that it actually holds the lens against the hyaloid fossa and flattens it a little for a greater focal length. When the ciliary muscle contracts, the lens fattens up, pulling the ciliary processes and the zonule anteromedially and relaxing the suspensory ligament a little. The focal length, then, is then shortened 
And that's the process of accommodation and part of the accommodation convergence reflex with pupillary constriction. So in summary, as I've said, the retina consists, I'll go over it and over it a bit, uh, of three parts, an optic, which is pigmented and nervous, arranged as ten discrete layers, a ciliary part, and an iridial part. And the layers, as we remember, are the ten layers of these um, of the retina. It includes the pigmented layer, the layer of inner and outer segments, which is the layer of the rods and cones, the so-called outer limiting layer, uh, a row of junctional complexes, the, what's called the outer nuclear layer, the outer plexiform layer, the inner nuclear layer, the inner plexiform layer, and then the ganglionic layer, and then ultimately the layer of nerve fibres. And so you've got to look, I would recommend to look at an histology book and check out all of those individual layers. I'll go through them again in a second, but one can see all these particular elements as I've said before. The layer of nerve fibres, the 10 is really the inner limiting layer, if you like. Layers 2 to 10 really comprise the neural layer, and in layers 6 to 9, the blood vessels are absent, and there are only elongated cones at that, uh, at that uh, level. So again, just to kind of reiterate, the vertebrate retina has 10 distinct layers. Just go over that area. Uh, when you get a chance. From closest to farthest from the vitreous, the inner limiting membrane, which is a basement membrane elaborated by Muller cells. Uh, there's a nerve fibre layer, which are the axons of the ganglion cell bodies. Um, there's a ganglion cell layer, which consists of the nuclei of the ganglion cells, the axons of which become the optic nerve fibres. And there's some displaced so-called amacrine cells there. There's an inner plexiform layer which contains the synapse between the bipolar cell axons and the dendrites of the ganglions and amacrine cells. There's uh, then an inner nuclear layer which contains the nuclei and surrounding cell bodies of the amacrine cells, bipolar cells, and some what are called horizontal cells. The sixth layer is then the outer plexiform layer which are projections of the rods and cones ending in the uh, rod spherule and the cone pedicle, respectively, and they make synapses with the dendrites of bipolar cells and horizontal cells. And um, in the macular region, that area is known as the so-called fibre layer of Henley, after Jacob Henley. The seventh layer are outer nuclear layer, which are the cell bodies of the rods and cones, the eighth layer is the external limiting membrane, which separates the inner segment portions of the photoreceptors from their cell nuclei. And then you've got an inner segment, that's the ninth layer, or outer segmental layer. The inner segments and outer segments of rods and cones. The outer segments contain a highly specialised sort of light-sensitive apparatus. And then the tenth layer is the so-called retinal pigment epithelium, which is a single layer of cuboidal epithelial cells. Uh, the layer is closest to the choroid and it provides nourishment and supportive function to the neural retina. Um, the black pigment melanin in the pigment layer actually prevents light reflection through the globe and that's important for clear vision. 
So these layers can be grouped, as I've said in other ways, into four main processing stages, really photoreception, transmission to bipolar cells, transmission to ganglion cells, which also contain photoreceptors, and the photosensitive ganglion cells, and then transmission along the optic nerve. And at each synaptic stage, there's also connecting horizontal and amacrine cells. The optic nerve is a central tract of many axons of ganglion cells connecting primarily then to the lateral geniculate body, and then ultimately onto the diencephalon, projecting to the superior colliculus, uh, and the suprachiasmatic nucleus and nucleus of the optic tract. Um, so therefore, in adult humans, the retina contains about 7 million cones and about 100, maybe to 150 million rods. And the disc as part of the retina, called the blind spot, lacks these photoreceptors located in the optic papilla, where the optic nerve fibres leave the eye, appearing as a kind of oval area on ophthalmoscopy. Temporally to that is the macula, uh, as I've said at the centre is the fovea, uh, which is uh, the area of sharp or central vision, which is actually less sensitive to light because of its lack of rods. And um, humans, as well as uh, primates or non-human primate, primates, put it that way, possess one fovea as opposed to uh, certain birds like uh, hawks who uh, have two foveas, bifoveate, and dogs and cats who possess don't actually have any fovea but a central band which is called the visual streak. And around the fovea, uh, the central retina extends for about six millimetres or so towards the periphery, the farthest edge of which, as I've said before, is the aura serrata. The neural arrangement of the eye is uh, really is a bit like the spinal cord embryologically, uh, in the sense that the sense receptor, the sort of first neuron, has its cell body that is peripherally placed, so it's a bipolar cell synapsing in the second-order neuron, the ganglion cell, whose axon then passes off to the thalamus, the lateral geniculate body, with the third neuron in the so-called retrolentiform part of the internal capsule, leading off to the occipital or visual cortex. The rods are a sort of more primitive form of light receptor, uh, and only they contain visual purple, and they're sensitive to rather dim light, making them referred to as scotopic. And the periphery of the retina contains rods only, as I've said before, with none at the fovea centralis. The cones, on the other hand, are photopic, uh, with a higher uh, threshold for registering colour, and they are found in the fovea, but not a lot peripherally. So there's that inverse relationship. And they're connected to, as I've said before, to a single ganglion, whereas the rods are connected to about 80 ganglion cells. The rods are more promiscuous in that sense. Um, now, the next area are the muscles of the orbit. And this area 
you know, the extraocular movements causes a lot of um, confusion for some reason. And I think one needs to think of them conceptually. And a lot of the conceptual appreciation of them is how they are differently attached to the globe of the eye. The difference between the recti and the obliques in attachment either in front of or behind the coronal equator of the eye. And once you understand that, you can understand also with the variation of the uh, orbital axis why they pull in different directions and why they actually have their greatest facility when either looking out or looking in, their most pure actions, and I'll come back to those. All of the extraocular movement is caused by a combination of the four recti and the two obliques. There's also the levator palpebrae superioris and the small, rather insignificant orbitalis muscle inferiorly. The orbit's unusual since the medial walls are parallel, but the lateral walls, as I've said, slope away from one another so that the uh, optic nerve and muscles cone from the apex of the orbit past laterally. And so the orbital ax axis, which is at the apex to the mid-base of the orbit when viewed from above, is directed anterolaterally. And the optic axis is, of course, just the back, front, back to front of the eyeball. So the optic axis, which is the globe axis, and the orbital axis, which is the bony axis, are therefore different. So these axes are not aligned. The medial end of the retort of the superior orbital fissure has a tenderness ring attached, incorporating the optic foramen, and from this ring the four recti arise. Now from the bone above is the levator palpebrae superioris uh, and the superior oblique. And thus nerves running from the superior orbital fissure are therefore going to be either inside or outside that muscle cone. They're going to be either extra or intraconal. And the extraconal nerves are the lacrimal, frontal and trochlear. The rest of the lateral part of the superorbital fissure is closed by the dura mater of the middle cranial fossa. And those nerves destined for the eyeball or the muscles remain inside the cone. The only branches passing out through the cone, including the posterior and the anterior ethmoidal and the infratrochlear nerves, branches of the nasociliary nerve. So there's some confusion regarding terminology. So let's agree that movement towards the nose is medial rotation, nasal deviation, or adduction, or turn inwards, or turning in. The opposite function would therefore be abduction, lateral rotation, or turning out. Upward movement is turn up or superior movement. Downward movement is turn down or inferior movement or depression. So all of these particular terms can actually cause a little bit of confusion. The levator palpebrae superioris, just to get this one off, arises from the undersurface of the lesser wing of the sphenoid, it's a flat-rimmed muscle with the thick frontal nerve lying on it and it runs as a sort of ribbon-like crescentic horn anteriorly and it attaches to the superior tarsal plate and to the skin of the uh, upper eyelid as a flange 
penetrating the orbital septum um, as well as attaching really to the superior fornix of the conjunctiva. The smooth muscle component is thin and it lies deep to the tendon, passing into the upper tarsal plate. The muscle is innervated by the superior division of the oculomotor nerve, entering the lower part on the medial side of the muscle or by piercing the superior rectus. The sympathetic fibres to the visceral element of muscle have their cell bodies in the superior cervical ganglion. So for some reason, this has both a somatic and a visceral nerve supply, both somatic and smooth muscles. The muscle opens the eye and elevates the upper eyelid. The intact sympathetic system does not compensate for somatic loss, so that in a third nerve palsy, there's complete ptosis. And in Horner's syndrome, only partial ptosis. So if we remember just going back into the autonomic nervous system, Horner's syndrome is the sympathetic takeout cervical sympathectomy. Of course, seventh nerve palsy is not associated with ptosis. It fails to screw the eye up. So these are the different sort of neural assessments of the eye. The uh, next is the superior rectus muscle. And this comes from the upper part of the tendinous ring, as well as from the dural sheath of the optic nerve, passing beneath the levator palpebrae superioris to be inserted into the upper sclera anterior to the coronal equator of the eye. That's important. The insertion of the recti is particularly important. I'm going to discuss that specifically in terms of ocular movements. The medial rectus arises from the medial aspects of the tendinous ring and also the dural sheath of the optic nerve, passing along the medial wall of the orbit below the superior oblique muscle to be inserted into the medial sclera again anterior to the coronal equator of the eye. The inferior rectus arises from the lower tendinous ring and is inserted into the inferior sclera anterior to the coronal equator of the eye. There is actually an expansion from the sheath which inserts into the inferior tarsal plate. So you can remember all of these muscles because they're relatively the same, some minor differences of each. The lateral rectus arises from the lateral convexity of the tendinous ring and runs um, uh, like the superorbital fissure as a sort of C-shaped origin so that it's longer than the other recti and there's effectively a kind of upper and a lower head, if you like, of origin, although there's really one continuous curved origin. And it's inserted into the lateral sclera anterior to the coronal equator of the eye, so the lateral rectus is a bit bulkier. The superior oblique, medial to the tendinous ring, arises from bone, and the bone is the body of the sphenoid, and it passes as a slender tendon under the trochlea, lubricated by a synovial sheath, and then runs backwards under the superior rectus muscle to be inserted into the postero-inferior sclera, but behind the coronal equator of the eye. And that too is important for optimal oblique function. The frontal bone may have a trochlear spine or a fovea at its superior medial or supramedial margin. The inferior oblique also arises from the bone of the floor of the orbit and is the only muscle not to arise from the back of the orbit. It passes obliquely back 
below the inferior rectus and passes between the lateral rectus and the sclera near the postero-inferior quadrant. And again, it's inserted into the area of the sclera behind the coronal equator of the eye. Now, some like to use this sort of chemical formula. I don't like it to remember the nerve supply to the extraocular muscles. So they call it LR6SO4O3, like it's a chemical reaction. And it signifies that the lateral rectus is innervated by the sixth nerve, the superior oblique by the fourth nerve, and the others, the inferior oblique, the inferior, superior, and medial recti, by the third nerve. Well, why the heck not just to remember it, basically? And that is that the superior oblique is innervated by the trochlear nerve, and that the um, lateral rectus is innervated by the abducent nerve, and all the other muscles are innervated by the ocular motor. It's a bit pretty easy to remember. I think it's just better if you remember them. Because the trochlear nerve decussates in the midbrain, it affects the contralateral superior oblique supply. And I think that's an important point. You don't get sort of isolated trochlear palsies. Uh, they're recorded, but it's not common. The medial rectus turns the eye in, but to do so, uh, um, uh, to do so also, the superior and inferior recti do the same thing. The lateral rectus um, turns the eye out, uh, but so do the obliques. So the lateral rectus and medial rectus have very simple actions. They don't have secondary movements. One turns the eye in and the other turns the eye out. So medial rectus in, lateral rectus out. The obliques are a bit more complex because they insert, as I've said, behind the coronal equator of the eye. And so their line of pull passes medial to the axis of rotation of the eye, that is, as their name suggests, they pull obliquely. The superior rectus turns the eye up and in, and the inferior oblique turns it up and out. So these things act in concert. The superior rectus and the inferior oblique act together to turn the eye up, even though the names make it a little bit counterintuitive. You think of sort of inferior oblique as pulling the eye down, that's not the case. So the superior rectus and the inferior oblique act together to turn the eye up. Now the superior rectus is turning the eye up and in, the inferior oblique is turning the eye up and out. And so if we remember that equally, the inferior rectus turns the eye down and in, and the superior oblique down and out. That is, they act together to turn the eye down. So pure up and down movement is the action of the relevant rectus with its oppositely named oblique. Got it? So the elevating action of the inferior oblique or the depressing action of the superior oblique become progressively more pure and hence effective when the eye is turned in. And the more the eye is turned outwards, the less their contribution to that up or down movement. Similarly, the more the eyes are turned out, the purer is the superior and inferior rectus functions to turn the eye up and down respectively. Still got it? It's of course a little more complicated since the obliquity of pull of the muscles 
produces a kind of wheel-like rotation or torsion on the eye, so that intorsion, which is viewing the right eye moving from 12 to 1 o'clock, is actually produced by the superior rectus and the bleak, and extorsion, moving the eye from the 11 o'clock position by the inferior rectus and the inferior oblique. So they're a little bit more complex in their actions for intorsion and extorsion, and that effect means that when there's actually diplopia in a paralysis of one of the muscles, there is actually an oblique positioning of the second image, and that's why that's the case. Now then, we should understand the effects of ocular nerve paralysis based upon what we now know <coughs> about the anatomy. There's a characteristic um, pattern of strabismus or squint and diplopia or double vision. The simplest lesion is obviously the sixth nerve palsy, the abducent palsy, and the eye can't look out because of paralysis of the lateral rectus. And when looking straight ahead, it is intorted or turned in because of the unopposed action of the medial rectus, the superior rectus, and the inferior rectus, or if you like to think of it, the unopposed action of the oculomotor nerve. Got it? Still getting it? A fourth nerve palsy is a little bit more complex. When the eye is turned in, it can't look down. So you think here of reading a book or walking down a flight of stairs, which are the difficulties that people present with. They don't say, I've come along with a fourth nerve palsy. They say, I can't read a book. I can't walk down the stairs. The superior oblique normally produces a slight intorsion. So there's a subtle extortion of the eye because of the unopposed uh, inferior oblique action. Now, often there's a trend by the patient to actually tilt the head towards the opposite shoulder a little to counteract this extortion. In other words, to bring the 11 o'clock in a right nerve palsy up to 12 o'clock so that the left, say the good eye, intorts to compensate and align for this little oblique diplopia. So it becomes a bit more complex if we think about it. With the third nerve palsy, there's obviously complete ptosis of the lid. So you'll see someone, you've got to actually lift the lid up to look at the eye position and the pupil. So the eye, when, once you lift the lid up, looks down and out, and that's because of the unopposed lateral rectus and superior oblique actions. The rest, the inferior rectus, the medial rectus, the superior rectus, the inferior oblique, they're all paralysed because it's a third nerve palsy. The diplopia gets better if you look laterally because the lateral rectus is normal, but the eye can't look in or up. And, of course, the pupil is what we call midriatic. It's dilated and doesn't react to light or on accommodation because the parasympathetic fibres transmitted in the inferior division of the oculomotor nerve are lost. The consensual reflex in the opposite eye is, as expected, preserved. So if we know all the anatomy about the extraocular movements, we can understand exactly how these palsies clinically present and some of the com complex nuances of how they present as well. So I want you to go over that. It means also maybe going over the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck, and we've got obviously the podcasts for that. I want to move now to the nerves and the vessels of the orbit as a kind of summary, if you will. There are seven nerves traversing the superior orbital fissure. 
the lacrimal, the frontal, the nasociliary, the trochlear, the obducent, and the superior and the inferior divisions of the oculomotor. We remember that lateral to medial, lazy French tart, sit naked in anticipation. And those are all the, um, the kind of uh, mnemonics that we can remember with each letter representing a nerve. The infraorbital and zygomatic branches of V2 pass from the pterygopalatine fossa to the orbit via the inferior orbital fissure. The frontal and infraorbital nerves are cutaneous, using the orbit as a transit. These are just summaries. The infraorbital nerve with the infraorbital artery supplies the maxillary sinus and some of the upper teeth. The zygomatic nerve enters the zygomatico-orbital foramen as the zygomatico-temporal and the zygomatico-facial before it has a communicating branch to the lacrimal, as we remember, for the lacrimal gland. The optic nerve is accompanied by the ophthalmic artery, which is below and lateral to the nerve. It's covered with an extension of pier and subarachnoid and dura. It's crossed from lateral to medial by the ophthalmic artery, the nasociliary nerve, and the superior ophthalmic vein. The ciliary ganglion is a bit lateral to the optic nerve with the surrounding short ciliary nerves and veins. The intracranial portion of the optic nerve is supplied by the anterior cerebral artery with a posterior two centimetres in the orbit receiving a branch from the ophthalmic artery and the anterior one centimetre supplied by the central artery, the end central artery of the retina. Nerves outside the cone of muscles that are extraconal are the lacrimal, frontal and trochlear. The lacrimal is the most slender, runs on the lateral border of the lateral rectus muscle, supplied, as we know, from the zygomatic nerve, and it supplies periosteum, pierces the orbital septum, is cutaneous for the outer upper eyelid, and it's accompanied by the distal lacrimal artery and supplies the fornix of the conjunctiva. The frontal nerve is a big nerve, and it runs on the labata palpebrae superioris, between it and the orbital periosteum. It's pretty big. It supplies periosteal branches and twigs to the mucous membrane of the frontal sinus. Don't forget that's often a little question. And it divides, as we know, into the supraorbital and supratrochlear nerves and the fourth nerve we've described before. The intraconal nerves are, of course, the oculomotor, the superior and inferior division with the nasociliary between these and the abducent nerve below and medially. The optic nerve lies medial and superior. The ophthalmic artery intervenes. The other nerve, as I've said, is the sixth nerve, which we've already described. The superior division of three supplies the superior rectus and the levator palpebrae superioris with sympathetic fibres from the cavernous plexus to the smooth muscle. The inferior division of three is larger with the nerve to the inferior rectus, medial rectus passing below the optic nerve, and then it becomes the nerve to the inferior oblique, which is the longest of the muscular nerves within the orbit. And it runs along the lateral aspect of the inferior rectus, and from here there's also a little parasympathetic root, as we recall from the inferior division of the oculomotor, that runs to the ciliary ganglion. The nasociliary nerve actually changes its name twice, officially, if you like. It becomes the anterior ethmoidal nerve, leaving the orbit, then becomes the external nasal nerve. And as a main nerve, it crosses the optic nerve with the intervening ophthalmic artery, passes medially then, 
between the superior oblique and the superior rectus, so it sort of arches over the optic nerve, and then it becomes the anterior ethmoidal nerve by entering the anterior ethmoidal foramen, where it lies in the roof of the ethmoidal labyrinth, and it enters the nose at the side of the Christogalli. And before entering the foramen, the nasociri gives off the infratrochlear nerve, just below the trochlea, that's why it's named so, with a small accompanying artery that supplies a bit of the periosteum and also supplies the lacrimal sac, a bit of the conjunctiva, and passes above the medial palpebral ligament to be distributed to the skin of the upper lid and the bridge of the nose, that very medial part of the upper lid. And these things are useful to know when you're putting in local anaesthetics to remove little lesions or to repair little lacerations for local blocks. In the cone of the muscles, the nasociliary gives off a number of branches. The most distal is the posterior ethmoidal nerve, which leaves the cone with a small artery beneath the superior oblique, and it supplies the posterior ethmoidal and sphenoidal sinuses. The sensory root of the ciliary ganglion actually leaves the nerve at the fibrous ring, and the long ciliary nerves then pierce the back of the sclera. Usually they're a couple in number, and they're medial to the leash of short ciliary nerves. The long ciliary nerve, you'll remember, carries the sympathetic fibres, which the nasociliary has picked up from the cavernous plexus, and those have cell bodies in the superior cervical ganglion, and they are motor to the dilator pupillae. So that's the wide-eyed pupil in the fight-flight reaction. There are a few sensory fibres that also supply the cornea, and those obviously have cell bodies in the trigeminal ganglion. We've actually discussed the ciliary ganglion before, and I think you should again review the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck to recap. We remember it's a little minute ganglion, only about one or two millimetres in diameter. It lies on the lateral side uh, of the optic nerve just in front of the ophthalmic artery, about a third of the way from the apex of the orbit to the back of the eye. So that helps in knowing roughly where it will be in the dissection. It's got three roots and they enter posterior. There's a sensory root, which as I've said is already a branch of the nasociliary nerve and that supplies the eye and the cornea and the sclera and the iris and the ciliary body, but it doesn't supply the conjunctiva division of that root abolishes the corneal reflex but not the conjunctival reflex. The sympathetic root is a branch from the cavernous plexus and it has vasoconstrictor fibres to the vessels of the eye. The cell bodies, as we've already just said, are in the superior cervical ganglion. And the parasympathetic root, of course, leaves the nerve to the inferior oblique and its synapses in the ciliary ganglion. And that comes from cell bodies, we remember, in the Edinger-Westphal nucleus. And those little cell bodies are in the midbrain. They're surrounding the oculomotor nuclei as well. So that explains why there's an interaction uh, with oculomotor function. Um, the branches of the ciliary ganglion, of course, are the short ciliary nerves. They're up to about a dozen uh, of those. And each nerve contains... Of course, fibres from all of the three roots. It's a mixed nerve like the pterygopalatine ganglion. It's got sensory and autonomic uh, um, components uh, running through it and parasympathetic uh, and sympathetic components running through it. Um, and these nerves, with all their three roots, pass out of the ganglion and they pierce the back of the sclera around the optic nerve 
running in the suprachoroidal space. Most postganglionic fibres actually supply the muscle of the ciliary body for accommodation, and there's only about 3% of them which actually supply the sphincter pupillae. Uh, they've got about 50 motor units, so there's only a very small supply for pupillary constriction. Sensory and sympathetic fibres supply the cornea, iris and ciliary body, and both the long and the short ciliary nerves carry sensory fibres from the cornea, but only the short ciliaries are concerned, as we've said, with pupillary constriction and with accommodation. Now, if we're summarising the vessels of the orbit, the ophthalmic artery, as we recall, is a branch of the uh, internal carotid artery, and uh, that's given off as the vessel emerges from the cavernous sinus or from the roof of the cavernous sinus, and the ophthalmic passes with the optic nerve above it, as I've said, in a little tubular dural prolongation, and it's typically got about 10 branches, which accompany all of the branches of the nasociliary, frontal and lacrimal, supplying the ethmoidal air cells, the lateral wall of the nose, the outer nose or external nose, the eyelids, the forehead. And at these places, it's branches anastomose, at least in theory, with the external carotid artery branches from the maxillary, facial and superficial temporal. And the two terminal branches of the artery and then actually the supratrochlear and the dorsal nasal. So all of these little ten branches of the ophthalmic artery follow all of the nerves, and so therefore you can include the anterior ethmoidal artery, the posterior ethmoidal artery, the lacrimal artery, the supraorbital artery, the supratrochlear artery, the short ciliary, long ciliary, dorsal nasal, infratrochlear, and not to forget that last one, the central artery of the retina, and I guess the posterior ciliary arteries of the choroid. So these are all the branches. I don't know if that's 10 or not. Let's see, count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, actually 11 if you include the posterior ciliary. So again, all the branches that we've mentioned, anterior ethmoidal, posterior ethmoidal, lacrimal, supraorbital, supratrochlear, short ciliary, long ciliary, dorsal nasal, or you could call it external nasal, infratrochlear, and not to forget the central artery of the retina. If you want to include the posterior ciliary arteries, you can. The last uh, two, that's the posterior ciliary and the central artery of the retina, have no anastomoses. And I think that's the problem I've had with my eyes, is an occlusion of the posterior ciliary to create an anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Um, I think I've got that particular problem. Um, the central artery, as I've said, is an end artery, medial and inferior to the optic nerve, entering about halfway between the optic canal and the eye. The anterior ciliary arteries and the muscular branches to the recti pierce the anterior part of the eye and form part of that major circle of the iris. So to recap, I'm recapping and recapping for those who want to know, the central retinal artery, the muscular branches, the posterior ciliary arteries, the lacrimal artery, the supraorbital artery, the posterior ethmoidal artery, the anterior ethmoidal artery, the medial palpebral arteries, if you want to include those. There are then terminal branches, which, as we've said, which are the supratrochlear artery and the dorsal nasal artery. The ophthalmic veins, of course, the superior orbital vein commences above the medial palpable ligament, passes above the optic nerve with the ophthalmic artery, and it has tributaries corresponding to the artery and communicates at its start 
with the angular vein, that's the angular facial vein, but it drains directly uh, via the superior orbital fissure into the cavernous sinus. It's not a great design because infections around that upper region of the eye and uh, face can, and frontal sinus can directly go and involve themselves in a cavernous sinus thrombosis or cavernous sinus thrombophlebitis. The inferior uh, orbital vein or ophthalmic vein communicates with tributaries of the facial vein over the infraorbital margin, running back and communicating with the superior ophthalmic vein as well and draining via the inferior orbital fissure into the pterygoid plexus. So that completes um, this section on the orbit and the next one will be the nose and paranasal sinuses. Thanks very much. <laughs>